All right, I'll go ahead and pray and we'll get started. Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity again to open up your word and have you reveal yourself to us. Show us uh, not only yourself, Lord, but uh, show us your son who is our savior, that we might know him better and appreciate more what it is we have in Christ, especially as we turn to these pages dealing with uh, the way you make promises and the way you keep them and the way you tell us what will come and how reliable that is, Lord. What an exciting passage it is we get to cover today. Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts to love you more as we realize what a great God we have. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen. So we're in Genesis fifteen sixteen, and uh, it's kind of nice. Fifteen one starts with after these things, which is a as a teacher of the Bible, um, and with my goal of just helping you understand it better, it's really nice because I think what that means that uh, after these things means that I should ask you what things did these come after. So you guys get to, okay, so what exactly? Whose life are we looking at right now? Abram, yes. And why is it we're looking at Abram? Who is receiving this word about Abram? So Moses is teaching it to who? Who's the, who's the recipient of this book? The Mosesites. So the Hebrews, as they're preparing to go into the promised land, where Abram has actually been dwelling for a while now. So what things have we seen in Abram? So Abram got, after Abram got called and made it to the promised land, what have we seen happen to him? Somebody else. He and Lot had to split up. Okay, so he, he ends up and he has to split up with uh, Lot because there's quarreling going on and there's not enough room for both of them. So he splits up. And the Lord actually, that's, that's a nice place to start because back in, that's in chapter 13, 13, 14, uh, God reminds Abram to look at everything around him and to walk the land and says, you're going to get all of this. Your descendants will receive everything. And uh, then what, uh, so, so we have this promise from God. Now, some would say that's part of the Abrahamic covenant. We're going to talk about what the Abrahamic covenant is today, and hopefully this won't muddy the waters too much, but there's certainly a promise of God to Abram of what he's going to receive. And then what happens in chapter 14? What's chapter 14 about? Okay, so we have a battle, a lot in the kings, uh, king of Sodom, um, King of Gomorrah and, and uh, three of the other kings get hauled off basically for not paying their dues or their, their library fines were late or something. Anyway, um, they ended up upsetting the people who actually were uh, taking tribute from them and uh, they end up getting carried off and Abram leads three others to go after them and he, he wins the battle, wins back the people and then uh, comes back. And on their way back, we talked about this enigmatic character, this Melchizedek, this king of peace, this king of righteousness that uh, comes and meets Abram and blesses him. And Abram turns around and tithes to Melchizedek, gives him a tenth of everything. It says in verse 20, and then Abram separates himself from 
the, the kings of the area by not accepting anything from them for saving them as he once it made clear for future generations that you did not make me great. It is God who is going to make me great. And then we end with Abram, though, taking and being sure the people who actually won the battle, who did the work, get paid for what they did, as well as those men that helped him, that they should receive their share. Just even making it even more clear, Abram had every right to take what, uh, what was uh, pledged him by the king of Sodom, but Abram did not. We see, the, again, Abram's contentment the contentment to take what was less when he dealt with Lot and a contentment to take less than what he had earned there in chapter 14. And, and we see this at the same time, God, all the way from chapter 12 through chapter 14, God just continue, continually blesses Abram with material wealth. He doesn't have the land yet, and he doesn't have any descendants yet. So it's after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am, a child, I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look towards the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Almost should pray after reading that verse. Uh, very important, potent verse. And, and for us, post-Christ, we should be realizing this is a this is an incredible point because Christ is not yet come. And we all would agree that salvation comes through faith in Christ alone. And yet Christ isn't here. Yet we see inklings here that, that Abram is looking forward to the promised son. In the middle of a passage about Abram looking forward to his own son being born. That's not a coincidence that those two things are present together in this passage. The salvation by faith, the, the being counted as righteousness, or being counted as righteous, being justified is another way of saying that, that another term we use, um, where he is standing before the Lord as though he is right with God, all because of this faith he has expressed. It's no coincidence that that comes in the middle of a promise of a coming son. But we do see something interesting here because God says to him, do not fear Abram. Why would God tell him not to fear? Because he is afraid. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like when Jesus meets people and knows exactly what they're thinking. Um, when he has conversations with people and he's like, why in the world are you bringing that up? That has nothing to do with the situation at hand. We see that with the women at the well and Nicodemus, if you, if you wanted to look over in the gospel of John, but we see God knowing the thoughts of Abram. He says, Hey, Abram, don't be afraid. I'm a shield to you. Your reward will be very great. So far, his, his material reward has been great. And Abram doesn't seem to be too worried about the fact that he doesn't have the land that's been promised him yet. 
Abram clarifies the fear here. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram's getting old now, and he knows that time is, is short for him to have a son. In fact, it may have even passed in his mind that this is impossible. We're going to find out that, that he's certainly capable of having children at this point um, in the next chapter. So he knows his time is running out, and that's what his fear is, is that uh, the key to this promise is, is in the descendants that is to come. And before we, we forget what the context here is in Genesis, it might be good to jump back to Genesis chapter 3. This promise of a son starts in Genesis 3, does it not? Where we see Genesis 3, always remember Genesis 3 as being where the fall takes place. Makes it a lot easier to flip to it and see, okay, what exactly is going on in the world today and why are we in the state we're in? Genesis 3. This is where we see the, the promise that God makes in Genesis 3.15, talking to Eve and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. I'm sorry, talking to the serpent. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So we have this promise of a coming son. The first son is, is born to Eve. And his name is Cain, correct? And, and uh, <clears throat> Eve names him Cain because she has gotten a man-child from the help of the Lord. And then she receives Abel as well as a son. But what happens with those promised sons? Is that, are they the one? Are they the future? They're looking towards the future. When will we receive one that crushes the, spirit, the, the serpent's head? What happens with Cain? What disqualifies Cain? He kills Abel. What happens to Abel? He dies. Okay, so those two are out. So then we have Seth and we look forward to Seth. Maybe it'll be along the line of Seth and Seth, Seth lives a little longer. So that's good. There's a chance. And we see this progression of the, the generations after Seth is born. And, and we saw that in chapter five. And then we eventually get um, chapter five, verse 28 and 29. As we follow this line of Seth, we get to Lamech, lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called the, his name Noah, saying, this one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground, which the Lord has cursed. 29, you can't read that without thinking back to Genesis 3. You can't read that without seeing the curse that's on the land and everything that's involved in that curse and the hope that is in this coming child, this child that has just arrived, who is Noah. And appropriately named, but Noah saves from the, the deluge, the, the worldwide flood that destroys everyone, but Noah's family, his immediate family. But again, we see that promise of a son and, and we should bear that in mind as we're reading through chapter 15. They're still looking forward. Abram is still looking forward to the promise God made to crush the serpent. And then we see Abram has a plan and the plan is that, that 
from an earthly perspective, he has no offspring. So the one who will receive his inheritance is actually the, uh, is actually Eliezer, who is uh, his kind of chief servant that's in the house. He was a servant who was born in his house and, and he's his number one guy. And this is the man that uh, Abram has that would have been raised basically as Abram's son to this point. And that's who was going to receive the full inheritance. It is interesting. I, I happen to be reading through uh, Deuteronomy right now. And this isn't how inheritances go when it comes to the promised land. Um, if it's a little bit different when, if you don't have any children, it would actually revert back to somebody in your family, your land would, that, that part of your inheritance and, and your whole inheritance would uh, assume to go with it. So it's a little different than that situation, but you also have to realize that those, that land was not allowed to pass outside of the tribe in which it started in, because once God apportioned tribal land to that We'll say somebody who's in the family of Dan, they couldn't give it to somebody who happened to be on an outside tribe. Somebody from the tribe of Judah couldn't have that land. That land was given to that tribe in perpetuity for all eternity. So that's a little bit different than what's going on here. But it does highlight us that Abram is not living under the same rules that, and the same law that was given to the people of Israel as they go into the promised land. So we see this promise uh, or this uh, inheritance is going to have to go to a servant and not a bad person. We're going to come back to this character, I think, in chapter 24 um, and see what kind of a man it is. And it's like, well, not a bad person to receive the inheritance, but not what God has promised. And God clarifies for them in, in verse four, this man will not be your heir, but one who came forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And then he shows him this sign of, of uh, gives him the example of stars here that you can't count them. And, and even now, the, the thing that I love about this is, so you think about Abram looking up at the stars and granted, there's not city lights and other things blocking the view. So he can see far more stars than we can see today. But even just as today, it's, it's layer upon layer. If you look deeper and deeper, the, the incredible expanse of stars that are present and even if you had the telescope to look at it, it just keeps on going on and on and on. And we see this as, as an example or a, a, um, a, is it allegory? I want to use the right word here for what, it, what it's like. The, your descendants will not only be great, within a couple generations, you won't just be having one child per generation. You're going to go to 12 plus and it's just going to get more and more and it's going to expand continually like that as it moves forward to the point where just like you can't count the stars, you can't count the descendants that you have. A bold promise for somebody who, uh, who to this point has no, point, no hope because he's, he's, again, time's running out for Abram and his ability to have children. And yet in verse six, he believes God and he counts it as righteousness. God counts that as righteousness um, his righteous standing before God is his faith. Faith is what justifies him. Faith is what sets him to have a right standing with God. You also need to understand that this happens before the law, before circumcision, before the sacrificial system. It's before all of this. It's, it's, it's even before the cross, as we said. So 
It's looking towards the cross, but it's not related to anything that's, that comes between now and then. Certainly not the law that's about to be given by, or has already been given by Moses to the hearers of this passage, to the hearers of this text for the first time, the, the original audience. Let's, let's look over Romans 3, 21, and just pause here for a minute on this declaring righteousness. So Romans 3, 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. But it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in God's merciful restraint, he let the sins previously committed go unpunished for the demonstration that is of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Romans 3 is making it abundantly clear to us or should be making it abundantly clear to us that the righteousness that is obtained, the, the right standing before God that is obtained through faith here by Abram was a righteousness obtained by looking forward to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It has to be. There's no other way. It's, it's a righteousness that is obtained by having faith in what God will do, that he will fulfill his promises, that he will crush the serpent, that there is a coming seed that will accomplish this. And yes, there is a time that, that's spoken of here where God is mercifully restrained and he allows the sins previously committed to go unpunished, awaiting the time when his son will come and take, that, take on that punishment for those sins. Take on the punishment for the sins of Abram are born by Christ in the future. So that Abram can be right before God. And God is not only the one who makes Abram righteous, but he does it righteously. He does it in, in a just way because there is a payment for Abram's sin that Abram needs. It isn't just God saying the rules don't apply to you, Abram. You had faith. We don't have to worry about it. You're good. That's not a righteous judge. Abram is declared righteous by his faith because his faith is in Christ. It's in the future seed that is coming and it is through that future seed that he obtains his righteousness. It's through that blood, the propitiation in his blood that takes place through faith there in 325. So God is, God is the one who declares a sinner righteous and does so at the same time being righteous himself. He is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Because from what we've covered so far, Abram's a pretty amazing guy. He's accomplished some great things, and he's also a terrible sinner. That part has is, is been made clear, and, and it's important that that part's been made clear so far. So if we return back to our text in Genesis 15, verse 7, we now get into 
more. And it's interesting because we just had Abram promise that, no, you're going to have a lot of kids. It's all going to be fine. Um, Abram believes it's counted to him as righteousness. And now God takes it a step further. And God says to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess it. He said, oh, Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So Abram here, right on the heels of having faith, basically says, God, give me some sort of sign for reassurance. It's not that I don't believe you, but tell, tell me how this will be. Tell me, show me something that helps me understand. Puts himself in a very humbling position here, I believe, especially with the way God responds to it. I think his attitude is right here. I think he's, he's vexed by the, the challenge that stands before him. And he asks God to make things clear to him. He calls out to God in this, in this incredibly tough situation. And God answers him. God does that. We're going to see that in the next chapter as well. So he asks God, how will I know that I will possess it? And God says to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid them, laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. And this would have been done as a, uh, as a way to signify, oh, I didn't write the reference down. As a way to say, you're going to have to just trust me, it's in there. As a way to signify, um, the two people making the covenant would cut the animals in, part, in half, lay them down, and then walk through that, make an agreement and walk through it. And basically it says, may what happened to these animals happen to me if I, if I break this covenant with you. And a covenant is kind of like a contract. It is kind of like a promise. Um, but it's more than that. Probably the closest thing we have to a covenant today and even then it's not, well, we can say the closest thing we have a covenant today in the church, but probably not in the world, is uh, marriage vows, where you stand before God and all the people and say, I will do these things. And you list the things that you're going to do in your vows. And the other person lists the things they're going to do in those vows. And a covenant is formed between the two of you and God Almighty. And that's what we're seeing here is, is Abram has prepared the carcasses to make this covenant with God. And this is, a, this is different than a promise. This is going above and beyond that. God's already told him, this is everything I'm going to give you. Abraham's believed. He's counted it as righteousness. Abraham asks for some sort of indication that he can know for sure. And God enters into this covenant. So verse 12, now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, Terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, maybe, afterward they'll come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. 
came about when the sun had set and it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch was passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Cadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. So God here, as we go back, we have this, the carcasses are cut. Abram drives away the birds. And then we see as the sun goes down, Abram goes into a dark sleep and he's in this terrible, great, dark place. And what's, what's so terrifying the, the, in this place? I think the best indication we have of why this, this is such, such terror has come upon Abram as he's now meeting with God, not seeing God in his full glory, not seeing God face to face, but all the same meeting with God at a level that he has not done so in the past. And God makes an interesting promise to them. This is before the covenant takes, takes place. Before the passing into, passing through, where we see the, the passing through the divided animals, God promises Abraham or tells Abraham a prophecy. It's interesting that, that this prophecy is actually gives credence to not only Abram, that God, listen, Abram, not only am I going to give this to you, I've got it all worked out in great detail. I've made this promise to you. One of the ways you can know that this promise is true is I have a whole entire plan. And the plan isn't just for, for roses and lollipops and rainbows and unicorns. There's going to be some bad things that are happening. But, but understand, I've got it all under control. More importantly, the people receiving this text, the original hearers of this text, see that what they just went through being slaves in Egypt or their parents went through as slaves in Egypt, was actually promised to Abram that this all would take place. God is giving far more detail than, than Abram could have asked for. Abram just needed some reassurance. Give me a sign. And God says, I'm, I'll do better than that. Not only am I about to make a covenant with you, but I'm going to tell you exactly how all this plays out over this next 600 years so that you can know for sure that I have this all under control. It's an amazing blessing that he gives Abraham here in helping him know what's about to come and helping him know how God's going to work the future. And then he promises, as we see, once again, the, the people are going to come out of the land with many possessions. We won't get to that point, but it, that is how that works out. The Egyptians are so thrilled that they're leaving. They're paying them to leave. Um, he promises then in verse 15, that you're going to go to your fathers in peace. When you die, it'll be a peaceful thing and that you're going to live to be a ripe old man. And he promises that they will return and they're going to return in the fourth generation. They're going to return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And we saw, well, so the Amorite would be the people in the land. And God is basically saying that 
I'm going to have to punish them, but they're not, they haven't done everything that they need to do to deserve the punishment. And when that takes place, I'm going to take care of things and you guys are going to be the hammer with which I do it. So God is, is not only working things out, he's telling Abram here, look, it isn't all just about you. There are other things in this world that I am working out that I'm dealing with. I will bless you, but I'm also, I also have other things to take care of. I need to punish the people whose iniquity is not yet complete. I know it's coming, and when it gets to a certain level, then my wrath will be done, and I will pour it out on them. And that's going to come through you, and that's alluded to as well in 17 through 21. So in verse 17, we actually see the covenant uh, ceremony take place. It comes, came about when the sun had set, it is very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces, symbolizing God himself passing through these pieces. Abram doesn't pass. Abram is asleep and watching this take place. Because Abram isn't the one who can make any of this happen. Not only can Abram make none of this happen, but... Abram is not the one who is responsible if it doesn't take place. This is totally different than what the people of Israel who are receiving this text would have known from Mount Sinai, where they go and they meet God and God hands them the law, where they stand outside of going into the promised land. They've just gotten done wandering around for 40 years. And God says, now look, when you go over there, here's my law. You're going to follow this law. And if you don't, here are all the punishments that come. And then if you do what's right, here's all the blessings that you're going to actually switch those around. But he promises them both. They enter a covenant with God where they are responsible. They are the ones who walk with God through the the animals severed in two, so to speak. That doesn't happen there, but they would have been responsible to uphold the law or face punishment. Not the system that's in place here. The system that's in place here is God has a plan for Abram. Abram expresses faith in that plan. And as we develop things through scripture, that faith is not his own, but is a gift from God lest Abram be able to boast. Abram expresses faith and that faith is counted as righteousness. God then shows him that this covenant is not something that'll be broken by you. It is not something that has to be maintained by you. It is not something that is initiated by you. It is something that is initiated by me when you called out to me. But the promise was already made even before you called the promise was there of what was coming. The seed is coming. Abram's already expressed faith in leaving the land of, of his fathers, the land of Ur. It's very interesting to trace that through, uh, but we don't really have time today. So we see this, this idea of covenant with God. This covenant with Abram is not a bilateral covenant. It's a unilateral covenant. It is God promising. We saw a unilateral promise or covenant with Noah. The sign was the rainbow. And that also was God saying what he would do in the future or what he would not do in destroying the earth with a flood again. We saw that unilateral promise that didn't depend on man 
It depended completely on God. This is another one of those covenants that does not depend on man. It depends completely on God. And God makes that totally clear in this situation with Abram, by the way, this, this covenant plays out. It should thrill us because, because we ourselves know how failed we are at following God and our own ability to save ourselves is pathetic at best. Then we move into, we jump in to this high point of Abraham in chapter 15, where the land is all promised to him. And yes, you're going to have a son and this is how it's all going to play out. And this is how you're going to take the land. And this is how your people are going to be. And they're going to be in, in captivity for or, or slaves for 400 years. And then they're going to come out. And then uh, we get back to, uh, apparently he wakes up and goes to bed and comes out. And we have this story given to us. So verse 16, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So Abram and Sarai hatch a plan. Does this interaction between Sarai and Abram remind you of anything else we've covered in Genesis so far? Jan, what does it it remind you of? Adam and Eve. Absolutely. So somebody remind everybody what happens with Adam and Eve. Look how awesome this is. It's so good. You want to try some? Oh, okay. I can do that. Thank you. Um, Yeah. So we see once again that notice I said, Abram and Sarai hatch a plan. Abram is totally complicit in this. Well, yeah, he's, his involvement is necessary, isn't it? Which is funny because Sarai jokes in a couple chapters here that Abram's not capable of doing this anymore. It's just, it's a weird, we're going to hit some weird stuff. You guys just, it's in the Bible, so we're going to hit it. But uh, kids, there's going to be some strange things going on that your parents may not have read you in the Bible before. It's not in the children's, (laughs) it's not in the children's Bible. All right. um, And some of it's actually disgusting and horrifying, but here we have, uh, Sarai coming up with this idea and Abram going along with it and just saying, yeah, hey, that sounds like a good idea. Sarai has taken charge. Abram's letter. Abram abandons his role in leadership. Uh, and this is really, really stupid. Can you imagine? Well, it does happen today. People use surrogates to have children. But can you, you just think of that. And the jealousy and the uh, resentment and there are just so many ways this is going to end really, really badly before it even starts. And you don't have to be there watching it occur to know that this is not going to end well. These people are behaving like idiots. Um, 
God has promised him a son and he's believed. And so quickly, Abram, I think, is trying to demonstrate here that the covenant he has with God is completely and totally going to be fulfilled by God because Abram is going to fail and he needs God. And that's, I think, I think that's what this is doing here is it's to show us that this is God who's going to bring about this seed, bring about this heir. Um, so he listens and uh, Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan and Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. So, turns out that uh, apparently they didn't think this through. And when Hagar is pregnant, she basically lets Sarai know how much better she is than her. So she's walking around with her little baby bump and is really impressed with herself. And her mistress is barren and it kind of makes her mad. So Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done me be upon you. And that's probably fair. Abram should have put a stop to it when the idea first came out. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she could, had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. And he will. Um, but we see here what would be expected. Um, one of the other issues is, huh, looks like the reason they haven't had kids this whole time wasn't Abram's fault. So there's a lot of reasons why. Sarai could feel less valued, not only by Hagar, but by Abram himself. And obviously, as we all saw this coming, this drives a wedge in their relationship as well. So Abram says to Sarai, he's not yet thinking clearly. Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly and she fled from her presence. Uh, Sarai got exactly what she wanted, which was Abram has an heir that's coming through Hagar. And now the relationship between Sarah and Hagar goes south and, and Sarah doesn't like the response that takes place. But again, how is it going to turn out any other way? Wisdom cries in the streets. It's, it's not hard to find. So verse seven, now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. So Hagar has run away because of Sarai's treatment by a spring on the way to Shur. And he says, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Kind of an astounding comment when you think about it. Sarai's clear, clearly in the wrong for mistreating her. Hagar is, is, if anything, the innocent party in all of this and runs away from that situation. And God says, no, go back. 
Um, read Philemon if you want more insight into that. But basically, the slave, the servant is told to return to the master and submit yourself to the authority. The authority God has placed her under is the authority that she needs to stay in. Moreover, the angel of the Lord says to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child and you will bear a son and you shall call the name, his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be, I don't think that's a compliment, but maybe it is. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? So who is she talking to? Jesus Christ. Okay, it's, it's God, right? And she, clar- she clarifies that for us. She calls on the name of the Lord and then the angel of the Lord comes to her and she says, you are God who sees for I have remained alive here after seeing him or have I remained, even remained alive here after seeing him. So we see that, that God comes and visits her in her affliction the Lord gave heed to her affliction. And promises her that her, her son will be, is going to have a great future in, in some regard. Um, and his life even is going to kind of reflect the life that, that Hagar, or the, the situation that he comes from. If you look at it, um, in verse 12, his hand will be against everyone. Everyone was against Hagar. Sarah and Abram put Hagar into this situation and then they turned on her. And um, he's going to live to the east of all his brothers. So a promise there of, of the future brothers of, of his would be Abram's descendants. So we see that not only is, is a promise of, or the, the, a reflection of where he came from given in what his future is going to hold um, but also the, the, the relationship there that he's going to have to the heirs of Abram. Um, so we see a promise made to the son. We see that um, his life will be kind of like the life that the, the situation where he started, where everyone's against him and there's hostility with the other descendants. Um, more importantly through this though, we see that God hears the afflicted, not just as we saw in the last chapter, the rich guy living in the big tent in the middle of the camp. So God not only hears Abram and his concerns and deals compassionately with Abram, but God hears the concerns and the cries of Hagar, who's an Egyptian, who is a servant girl who's despised by her masters and kicked out of the camp. God hears her as well. God's compassion doesn't just fall upon the 
people he has selected, the Israelites. His compassion is, is outside that camp, so to speak. An important point as the Israelites are about to go into the promised land. That yes, there are people whose iniquity is so full, God is now going to judge them. But there's also people that God has chosen that God hears their cries and answers. God recognizes the afflicted. He doesn't just bless the people he has chosen in the line that's going to come through Abram, um, through his son Isaac, but also through Ishmael, his other son. And Ishmael, the other son, will be against, will be hostile to Isaac's descendants. God even hears the afflicted of those who will become the enemies of his own people. We even see that today. The Ishmaelites, the the true Arabs that live to the east of where Israel sits today and now live in, in, are part of who would be the Palestinian people. The, the, The two sides have never come together and they never will. There's always going to be hostility there to the point where even religiously we have the Jewish religion and the Muslim religion of the two groups cannot see eye to eye and never will, which is a good reminder of what Abram did when he neglected his duty in leading his wife. The birth of these people, these, the Ishmaelites, the present day true Arab people, um, it all comes about because of Abram's failure to lead in his family and to show trust in God in this situation that God is going to actually accomplish what his plan is um, and he doesn't need help doing it. So Abram's foolishness not only costs himself in this situation, but it costs the Israelite people in perpetuity. Um. Your sin yourself never costs just you. It, sin never affects just the person sinning. Even if you believe it's in secret, it doesn't. It affects everyone around you and it affects your attitudes. It affects other behaviors that you have. It does affect any, it never affects just one person. There are other people who bear the cost of your sin. And, and here we see, Abram and Sarai giving birth through this idea to a people that's going to afflict their own people for all generations. Just because he lacked trust in what God had just promised him that he would do. He's going to give him descendants. He's going to give him the land. And Abram and Sarai hatch a plan of how they can do it on their own. I myself see that in, in my own attitudes and actions sometime and I think if you look closely enough, you're going to see it in your own as well. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for, uh, again, an opportunity to see that you are a good and gracious God, that all we have is given to us by you and that you sustain all of your promises. All the eternal promises we have in your son are, are taken care of by you and guaranteed by you and not by ourselves. We also see, Lord, that you are a God who answers the call of the afflicted. If there's anybody who is 
in distress, whether that be because of physical situations or, or um, health situations or, or um, emotional issues, family issues, that those things all are a concern of yours. And there isn't a single one of us in here that uh, doesn't fit somewhere in between the extreme of Abram and Hagar. And yet you answer the calls of for help in both people and that you have plans for each and every one of us, Lord. And I pray that we would see that and that we would take great reassurance that you are a God who's worked out those problems that we're having, as well as a God who knows every single detail of how that's going to be, that you don't, uh, that you don't plan the ends for us without also planning the means by which it will be accomplished, Lord. And in that uh, we rejoice. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.